millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Try Audible Plus free for 30 days. Audible Plus is a brand new all-you-can-listen membership that offers access to thousands of titles, including a vast variety of audiobooks, podcasts, and originals that span genres, lengths, and formats. Access Audible Originals, including documentaries, theater, and sleep programs, all made to be heard. Plus, audiobooks, including fan favorites and most loved genres like mystery and thrillers and motivation. Audible Plus also allows you to tune into podcasts like Conversations on Dance, an exclusive series ad-free. Get Audible Plus now, free for 30 days and just $7.95 a month after that. Or give the gift of Audible this holiday season. To learn more, visit amazon.com slash shop slash conversations on dance or click the link in the show notes. I'm Rebecca King Ferraro. And I'm Michael Sean Breeden. And you're listening to Conversations on Dance. On today's episode of Conversations on Dance, we are joined by the artistic director of Ballet West, Adam Sklou. Adam sits down with us to tell us about his journey from dancer to director, the positive changes he's enacted since he took over the role of artistic director in 2007, and to give us a deep look into the company's production of Willem Christensen's Nutcracker, the very first full-length production of the holiday classic ever performed in America. Ballet West will be performing the Nutcracker at the Kennedy Center in Washington, D.C. from November 22nd through the 26th, and in Salt Lake City from December 8th through the 27th. Tickets for the Kennedy Center can be purchased at kennedy-center.org, while Ballet West's hometown performances can be found at balletwest.org. Good morning, Adam. Thank you so much for joining us. We've long wanted to have you on the show, and now you're here, and we get to talk about uh, the upcoming trip to the Kennedy Center with the Nutcracker. But since we have not had you on yet, we'd love to hear a bit about your own personal background. Uh, perhaps we could start with a little bit about your own performing career. Oh, my goodness. Well, um, my career uh, came almost by accident. I uh, didn't actually start performing and dancing uh, until I was uh, 16 and a half, almost 17. Oh, wow. Yeah. Um, I uh, had been doing theater in high school and um, the 
someone said, oh, you should go to classical ballet classes. And, you know, I started and just fell in love immediately. I had from a very young age, uh, sang, painted, uh, did some sports, doing all these things. I wasn't very good at any of it because I just didn't focus on it. And all of a sudden, here came classical ballet, and it was everything that I wanted, um, all wrapped up in one. So I started headstrong right away. Um, I started a little uh, a studio called Berkeley Ballet Theater in Berkeley, California. It was run by a woman named Sally Streets, who is uh, a former uh, New York City ballet uh, soloist and the mother of uh, prima ballerina Kira Nichols. Yeah. yeah. And um, very early on, uh, she sent me over to Oakland Ballet. I had maybe four months of classical training, and uh, they were performing the American premiere of a ballet, uh, Bronislava Najinska's Les Nos. Uh, which had never been done in America before uh, by the company at uh, the Oakland Ballet, and they needed someone there, uh, extra men. So she sent me over, and um, I uh, met with all of them, and I met Irina Najinska, Bronislava's uh, daughter, very tiny little woman. She was staging the ballet. She looked up in my eyes, and she said, uh, you're going to make a very good groom. I can see it in your eyes. Well, I only knew that this was a ballet about a wedding. And I thought, oh my gosh, I'm doing the groom. That's like a leading role. And oh my goodness, what gracious. Well, <laughs> if anyone had seen Najinska's version of Lenos, the bride and the groom actually don't do any dancing. It's everybody else who dances around them. The groom just has to stand there and look terrified. So of course she saw it in my eyes because I was a natural for that. <laughs> I could stand there and look terrified. But I was, yeah, but I was hooked right away. Um, I uh, then uh, went on for a brief summer at SAB and then um, got um, snatched up. I was taking classes also at the Joffrey School in uh, New York. And Robert Joffrey saw me there and sent me to his workshops. And it was all very, very fast. And within hmm, less than two years, I uh, was in uh, Joffrey II, and I was one of the last two dancers Robert Joffrey picked for his company out of Joffrey II, and he was a very funny um, little man. He had a but very powerful energy, and he looked at me and he said, Adam, I'm going to take you into my company against my better judgment, <laughs> but you're smart, so I know you're going to succeed. Now you just have to learn how to dance. And that was my entire beginning of my career. I spent 12 years, 14 years with the main company at the Joffrey Ballet, moving from uh, uh, New York and then to Chicago. And when the company moved to Chicago is when they asked me to start taking on some more leadership stuff. And uh, that was my performing career. And I danced many wonderful roles and um, have had, uh, and it has given me a love and an insight to how I want uh, the future of dance to look also. So, yeah. You know, something that strikes me right away is, Rebecca, we've talked to a few leaders, artistic leaders recently that all got late starts. And mm -hmm. I'm wondering if you think that's actually something that fed positively into any sort of leadership aspirations you had. Maybe you maybe it gave you a chance to absorb other skills that you would not have had otherwise if you started ballet when you were eight and a half. You know, how, how do you feel like your late start right. helped? Yeah. No, no, no. I think that, that that's absolutely right. Certainly in my case, um, I will not deny now, although I never wanted to admit it, that I think I wanted to be an artistic director before I wanted to be a dancer. Really? But I, also, I had to be a dancer if I was going to be an artistic director of a ballet <laughs> company. Um, I remember very early on, and maybe 17 or not even 18, um, I, I saw the uh, Joffrey Ballet. My parents took me to see it in San Francisco, and um, uh, I got their um, uh, new playbill. It was their 25th anniversary 
program and I scoured through it and read every little detail about it, about Mr. Joffrey, about Mr. Arpino, about each individual dancer. And I realized that that type of oversight and organization was something that was inspiring to me right away. So I think you're absolutely right. So interesting. So how do you think then, even though it may not have been in front of mind while you were dancing, how were you then trying to absorb and take in some of these leaders that you were working with? How were you absorbing all this information to then kind of put it in the back of your mind and then use it moving forward as an artistic director? Well, I think I was really fascinated always by everyone's individual process, choreographers' processes, uh, repetitor and stagers' processes, um, historical work, and what that meant to how it compared to the future. This were all, I came from a family of intellectuals, so I think I could not have uh, not approached my own performing career with a slightly intellectual bent. And so the history, how the history, how the new works uh, reflected the history, where people's influences were, was fascinating to me from day one. And so I was Mm -hmm. constantly aware of that, constantly involved in that in my mind. Um, And so, yeah, that was really then something that I could then take into my own position in leadership. Yeah. Right. I think it's interesting to me that, you know, I know that um, you know, historical um, remountings of works that are maybe lost or um, getting to that like sort of historical truth that there is some uh, is a big part of Ballet West. And it's so cool that your first thing you ever did was this historical remounting of Lenos. Yeah. Um, I mean, I, I did it. Uh, I did that version in Boston Ballet. And even though it was not, you know, it had been done elsewhere, it still felt like, oh, wow, this is such a weird amazing mind-bending time travel moment you know it's just so different and special and unique so I think that that's cool cool to me that you were already immersed in that side of things that would later impact who you are as a director yeah, very much right off the bat. I mean, it's 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 fascinating in a work like Lenos. Um, yeah, whether it was always enjoyable to dance or not enjoyable to dance, there never was a question that it was groundbreaking. That we were involved with something bigger than ourselves and something important. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. then, really, as time went on to understand, I mean, first of all, um, an example of uh, early choreography by a woman choreographer, a woman designer. I mean, this wasn't happening that often, and nowadays mm-hmm. we don't even consider it that much but there were a lot of very prominent women in classical ballet who were producing things and that always fascinated me as well Mm. so there are just so many aspects of it as we look into the future because I always look at the history as a guide to what is coming up into the future yeah we're going to dive more into your process as an artistic director but first we'd like to hear how you the job position came up came to you and how what made you well obviously you were eager to accept it because you had your eye on this but tell us a little bit about that well it's actually quite complicated you know i spent 12 years with the joffrey ballet in chicago after i had stopped dancing they had asked me to start taking on some leadership roles early on i started organizing schedules really um as i was hard work phasing out of my dancing career i was organizing schedules and little by little, then I started running rehearsals and became an assistant ballet master, what we now call rehearsal directors. Um, and uh, then um, the then director, co-founder, Gerald Arpino, Mr. Arpino asked me to start assisting with casting. And then little by little, that became assisting with programming. And I moved from assistant rehearsal director to rehearsal director to director, uh, assistant director to associate director. And what was very interesting is I felt like those 12 years in Chicago were my 
college, my graduate school, and my internship all put together. Mm. In 2007, um, the board of the Joffrey Ballet in Chicago had announced that um, uh, Mr. Arpino was going to be moving to the position of emeritus. And um, they were, they had informed me as well as a number of other people from the uh, organization that we were uh, going to be candidates in a search for a new artistic director, but that they were going on an international search. Um, And, you know, I mean, I felt um, nervous, worried about that, uh, concerned. I mean, I loved the Joffrey Ballet. At this point, I had spent almost 24 years there. Um, and, um, I thought that I was the right person to be able to help run that company. But, um, at the very same time, I received a little one-line email from a search consultant who said, would you consider, uh, pre- uh presenting your resume for consideration for the artistic directorship of Ballet West in Salt Lake City, Utah? I had obviously heard of Ballet West. In fact, um, the paths of many of the dancers had crossed with me. I had worked with a number of them at the Joffrey School and even back in Oakland and all of these other things prior to. So I knew about its very uh, strong and powerful history. Mm-hmm. But at first I was like, no, I'm never going to leave the Joffrey Ballet. This is going to be my home. But I thought, but it would not be a bad idea to at least see what your market value is. It was mm-hmm. that callous, really, that I, I started. And I had never been to Salt Lake City except for being through the airport once. And so I took a phone interview. I took another phone interview. They asked me for another phone interview with a big group. And then finally, they asked me to come out to work with the dancers, coach the dancers, meet the board, meet the staff, do all of these things. And um, I twiddled my thumbs and heemed and hawed and said no. And um, my um, my husband actually finally just said, uh, got on uh, an email and he sent my my dates and application for them to go, to, to, to go on out. I wasn't going to do it. Oh, um, funny. But I did. I got there. I got here. Um, and I slowly, while I was working, fell in love. Mm-hmm. I fell in love with the company. I fell in love with the city. I thought I saw endless potential endless potential. And I realized on that visit then and there that if I were to stay at the Joffrey, I would probably just be slavishly holding on to an old vision. Mm -hmm. Ah. And that what that company actually needed as much as what I needed was change and a new vision. And I saw a path of what I could do here at Ballet West. And so I left that uh, three, four-day interview process, whatever it was, um, hoping and hoping and hoping that they would offer me the position. And a week later, they did. And um, yeah, I've been here since uh, March of 2007. So it's my uh, 16th year as artistic director. And um, the company is growing strong. It's been a long, hard road, but uh, we are now a budget size of the top 10 companies in America. We uh, have had three years of record-breaking sales and uh, subscription growth uh, at a time when things have been very challenging for ballet companies around the country. Our school has nearly a thousand students with four different campuses, three satellites. And um, all of these things were things they asked me to help build and grow. And so I'm really excited that we could be getting to this place now. Right. I think it, it's so beautiful. I think you're probably the first time we've ever had an artistic director speak to this point. Um, we often have dancers come on. I mean, Rebecca and I both 
feel that we come from that sort of idea too, where the maybe the original dream you had didn't pan out and then it turned into something even better. You know, I think, you know, we say if we had gotten into the companies that were our, our dream companies as kids, we don't think we would have been nearly as satisfied with the careers we had. So um, I think that's really, it's really inspiring to hear it from you that even it's not just about your performing career, even later on, um, you know, you can you can bend your aspirations and then find something more beautiful than you expected. And for anyone, I agree with that. That you need to follow the path that's given to you. If it, it really, you know, obviously from my early training, I I wanted to be in New York City ballet, and I probably could have gotten into New York City ballet and had a pretty nice performing career, and that would have been it, in my opinion. I'm not a superstar dancer. I never was. I was a good dancer. I started late, so I was always struggling with technique, um, which was also a gift, I think, in the long run as an artistic director. Mm-hmm. Um, But then the Joffrey fell into my lap and I had a hugely successful career Mm -hmm. as well as one in leadership there. I wanted to stay at the Joffrey. This fell into my lap and I said, let me just follow this. Mm -hmm. And I did. Mm -hmm. And this was my path. And as I said, there's been not a single regret. And I've been very proud of the work that I could uh, uh, do here at Ballet West in the last 16 years. I want to kind of dig in a little bit more to the changes that you have made. We um, saw an interview that you did recently with our friends at Dance Data Project, where you were talking about um, some of the repertoire and how you've made changes. And and I just wonder how you've seen those changes reflect not only in the dancers, but also in your audiences. Yeah, this is such a strange conversation for me to have because it's a really hard one to put your finger on exactly. Um, Suffice to say that I think once you really build quality and exciting and interesting stuff, no matter what it is, that your audiences will come. I think Mm -hmm. that that's really the ultimate goal because they will trust you. They come because they trust that it's Ballet West, not just because it's the Nutcracker or Swan Lake. Although we have those audiences that come back there too. Um, Ballet West has had, and one of the gifts that I got here from Ballet West is that it has had five, I'm the fifth artistic director in its 60 year history. Um, so from its founding with Willem Christensen, then taken over by Bruce Marx, uh, then uh, to uh, uh, Sir John Hart, to uh, Jonas Kolge, and then to me. And each one of us has shaped and molded the repertoire in our own way. What I'd like to think I did was because I am a historian, I won't deny that, I took the history and the legacy of the company. I used every single aspect that had been built on. So use that as a foundation and then added to it, not only with the kind of more Joffrey style historical legacies, but also with new works. I'm really, really inspired by up and coming choreographers and I want to give them a chance. And when I had arrived here, there had been no new choreography at Ballet West for nine years. So I knew I had to change that up. So these were big things that I was uh, working um, on was building that, was building that, was also building the diversity of the choreographer base and the dancer base. These were things that just weren't part of of um, our history and our legacy, um, putting more women, more uh, people of color, more people of different ethnicities, not only on the stage, but also as choreographers and leaders. Um, and I feel like I've been doing that for my entire leadership career because it's always been important to me. Mm. And what has happened is when it's good, little by little, more people come. So now we see a very diverse audience. We actually have a very youthful audience at Ballet West, which is again a surprise when everybody's talking about people getting older and older. 
Mm -hmm. Um, It's about balance. Choreo uh, programming to me is about balance. And I have not, I I like to walk a, a balance between high art and popular entertainment. So I'm not too shy to do something like Dracula, just as I'm not too shy to make our audiences see something like The Green Table, just as I'm not shy about giving our audiences an opportunity to see something like Forsyth's Blake Works One or emerging choreographers where we're going to take a chance and it may be a a flop, which we've had plenty of, as well as an immense hit and success. You know, that balance is there so that when you're planning a menu, you've always got something for everybody, you know, and that's really been my my goal um, with programming. I try and stay as um, aware of current trends as possible. Obviously, my own personal taste goes into that. Uh, But, um, you know, I don't I try not to just jump on the bandwagon of the next uh, uh, name in choreography unless I think it's right for us, because we've also created a very unique look and style. And that's something that um, I've always wanted for the company, too, is that Mm -hmm. people can immediately say, oh, they're ballet West dancers. And I think that that um, also uh, infuses how I uh, program the, uh, the choreography. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is PlushCare. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply, if rated PG. Yeah. I want to so- ask... Go ahead. Sorry. Go ahead, Rebecca. Well, I just want to ask about this is kind of random, but I'm curious about Breaking Point, the TV show that you guys did. If we could talk about that for a second, because Michael and I, when we were at Miami City Ballet, they tried to do a reality show on us for like a second. And they realized very quickly that the dancers weren't going to give them any drama or anything because we were like, people will see this. We can't do that. And so I just wonder that had to have felt like a risk for you to do that. The show ended up being, I think, very interesting. It had two seasons, I believe, right? Yeah. It's available on Amazon Prime, I realized today when I was looking up the year, <laughs> if anyone wants to go watch it. Tell us a little bit about that and what that felt like to kind of put yourselves out there and give that a try. Yeah, you know, um, I've tried really hard to develop a really close uh, working relationship with my artists. And my artists at the time, um, we had a very good, friendly relationship um, about things. Um, at least, uh, BBC international had been shopping around this, uh, potential. I'm not sure if that's the one that they Maybe tried was, to do. Um, but a number of companies had basically said no, uh, to this and, um, they wanted to come to us for a week to do a screen test. And I said to, uh, the dancers, what could this hurt? You know, what's, you know, what, what will be like? And they were like, well, let's, let's give it a shot. And, um, we, just interviewed um they 
anyone who wanted to be interviewed was allowed to be interviewed. And they interviewed about two thirds of the company. You know, a third of people didn't want to be involved and that was fine. And nobody was forced to be. Um, and um, we just talked it on through. And about a month later or so, they came forward and said, if we're interested, they would love to follow our stories that we mm. had some very interesting individuals and individuals who weren't afraid to put themselves out there um, uh, publicly. And we talked a lot. Is Are, are we going to be uh, okay with this? Uh, but in the long run, we said, let's give it a chance because it could be really good for the company and for the art form. Was our, my, my greater goal was that this would be good for exposure of the art form. And I always said, didn't do breaking point for the thousands upon thousands of people who love and know ballet. We did breaking point for the millions and millions of people who know nothing about ballet. And hopefully we can then expose them in a way uh, to it. So that was, we had lofty goals for it. Mm -hmm. And um, I think it, it went off really well. It was really difficult. Um, we, it took us a long time to get used to. Um, there were a handful of us who were miked from dawn till dusk who would have to get up at like five in the morning to go and do what we call the talking heads, just like we are now, doing, mm -hmm. uh, talking about what's going on, which is part of reality. Sometimes talking about it before it happened and then reacting to what had happened. Sometimes, you know, it was all very uh -huh. weird. Uh, but we got into that. Um, some of the dancers got pigeonholed into characters that really don't represent right. who they are at all. They took uh, a sort of gestalt of the company. They had, you know, uh, Christiana Bennett, who was our senior principal ballerina. They had Becca and Sisk, who was up and coming. They had um, Alison DeBona, who had been there. And, and they kind of created characters that were basically based on who they were in the company but then built on that to create a more interesting drama. Mm -hmm. And, right. um, you know, we, we lived with it. We were okay with it. Allison had some trouble for, at first. She was like, I mean, hope you don't mind me saying she was like, yeah, man, I got the bitch at it. <laughs> that was what she did. I was like, you sure did. You Aww. sure did. You know, but she, after a while kind of relished it. She was like, fine, I'm just going to lean into it. Um, right. I allow people in my house. Again, my husband said, we're not allowing reality at home. That was his phrase. So, <laughs> but it, I, I was really pleased with what we ended up uh, doing. I'm, I'm proud of it. Um, it was controversial because it wasn't always perfect, but nothing ever is. And it did more good for Ballet West than it did harm. Good. So I'm That's very proud great. of it. Cool. Why don't we shift gears now to the Nutcracker? And perhaps you could start just by telling us a little bit about the historical um, aspect of this particular production. Uh, well, this ballet, Willem Christensen's production of the Nutcracker, is the very first full-length version of the Nutcracker in America. Prior to that, America had only seen uh, like the Tory company, the Ballet Russe, doing like a Nutcracker suite, Act Two, or different variations of Diverta Small. Um, and uh, no one had produced a full version of it. Uh, Christensen, who was born and raised in Brigham City, Utah, then uh, studied under Fokine and Balanchine, um, who was the same age as him at that, uh, um, toured through the country in vaudeville with his brothers. One of their big dance numbers was the Russian dance from the Nutcracker, he and his brothers. <laughs> uh, and um, that we do to this day, that version. Mm. Uh, wow. Well, the expanded version that he produced when he put it on the company. Um, he 
landed in San Francisco, where he founded the very first full ballet company in America, which was the San Francisco Ballet. And there he created America's first Swan Lake, America's first Coppelia, and America's first Nutcracker. It was during World War II, wartime, and he had a shoestring budget, and he needed an upper for audiences at that time. And that's what he uh, produced. And little by little, he added on it. In the early 1950s, he moved uh, to back to Salt Lake City. Interesting reasons, but... Um, uh, he founded the first fully accredited ballet department in, um, I believe, the world, and that was the University of Utah's ballet department. Prior to that, ballet had just been part of the PE department. So this was uh, something. Early on, I think he became a little bored with running uh, a uh, an academic institution, and he started taking those dancers and building his own performing company. And one of the big things that he produced was the Nutcracker early on. So that was from the early 1950s. Hmm. It predates, so the choreography of it predates George Balanchine's version by 10 years. And it started being produced right around the time that Balanchine, maybe a little earlier. And so we still call it perhaps the longest running Nutcracker in the world because we still do this version. And with the exception of one year in 2020, uh, it has been performed consistently and hmm. at first and i knew the history of it and i love the history of it and i was worried about the history of it oh is this going to look dated is this going to look old no hmm. that's what's so exciting it's fresh it's alive it's fun there's lots of dancing for everyone um it runs quickly and concisely i think a lot of it has to do with christensen's own background in vaudeville so act two almost runs like a vaudeville show one number after another number hmm. um as opposed it's it, it it's very engaging and um and quite wonderful um it, uh, in 2017, we underwent a uh, facelift for it with all new sets and costumes, and I oversaw uh, the production of that with the designers, really choosing to um, stay true to the shape of it so that we could continue the choreography the way that Christensen had uh, uh, created it, and uh, but also make it more fanciful and update it. We have um, modified a couple of the variations because what was being looked at in 1944 through a lens then is not really acceptable nowadays. And um, what I like to say is I really wanted every one of those variations to be a celebration of culture, not a mockery of culture. And um, uh, particularly the Chinese dance, we did something very interesting where we interpolated uh Willem Christensen's brother, Lou Christensen's version, which he had created actually in the, um, he had redone in the early 1960s for the San Francisco Ballet, which was very much, um, it was the first time, to my knowledge, uh, that uh, they had incorporated a Chinese dragon, uh, in one of those street dragons into it. And now you see it a lot, but that was something that uh, Lou Christensen had incorporated in the early 1960s. And um, so it was this uh, warrior uh, battling this Chinese dragon. I asked the Christensen family if we could interpolate Lou Christensen's version into Willem Christensen's production just to create a greater celebration. We um, did a lot of research on historical Chinese masks. So what the um, warrior is wearing is uh, an exact replica of historic Chinese masks. And I think the outcome was really great. In fact, members of the Asian American community here said that that turned from being their cringiest moment at, in the Nutcracker to their favorite moment in the Nutcracker. And that meant an awful lot. So 
it's still a living, breathing thing. It's very much alive, but it's also very much preserved history in that way. And, um, and I think that that's what makes it so unique and so special. Hmm. Right. I think that that's, that's so beautiful how creative you were able to be with that rather than, I don't know, just having someone new come in and start from scratch. Like you're able to be historically respectful and how wonderful to even incorporate, you know, his, his brother's work in there. Um, you know, I think Nutcracker, it's easy to be cynical about it. Uh, a lot of dancers don't look forward to it. <laughs> Rebecca and I are not like that. We, we, we love <laughs> um, but I, can you just, I guess, give audiences, like if someone, if you heard someone thinking like, oh, Nutcracker's a drag. And I don't want to go. What 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 reason should someone go see Ballet West Nutcracker? What what is magical about this particular production, or why why do you still love the Nutcracker and look forward to it? Well, there are so many reasons. Um, uh, it is a first of all, it's a quick and concise show. Um, uh, Christensen Nutcracker runs two hours. Boom, it's over with one intermission in there, and um, and so it's great for audiences that twenty uh, first century audiences that don't really have the time to sit through necessarily a two and a half hour, three hour program, but. Um, it has often been said that this was not Tchaikovsky's greatest ballet score, but I think it has some of his most beautiful and profound music in there. I still get choked up um, hearing the uh, transformation, uh, at the height of the transformation. Um, it, it's just like awe-inspiring. Um, the the snow scene parts of it just move me, and the sugar plum pot it is just so... Um, uh, heart stopping and never ceases to be beautiful music for me. So I think on that level, it's great. Um, the production that we've put together is visually stunning. It takes place in the era of E.T.A. Hoffman. So uh, uh, early 19th century and uh, the costumes are, are just so wonderful. They're a combination of uh, period accurate and very fanciful. It's very colorful um, and uh, it's exciting for kids. We have um, uh, in act two, um, part of the new production has changed uh, what used to be called oriental servants into attendants and they're actually lemurs. So little kids are wearing these and they can, and it's really fun because we, we also have um, little bumblebees that come out from underneath mother Ginger's skirt because she's a giant beehive. Um, <laughs> historically in the very first production of uh, the, uh, the nutcracker, it ended with bees buzzing around a, a beehive. In fact, uh, that's why Rotmansky himself, a great historian in, in ballet incorporated uh, bees into his version. We've done it in a slightly different way, but it's that same idea so mm -hmm. there's always something visual it's funny audiences are roaring with laughter in um the uh uh in the battle scene the mouse king is very very funny in fact there's a whole ad lib uh section where uh Christensen wanted the Mouse King to ad-lib. The very first time we went to the Kennedy Center with the Nutcracker, our Mouse King threw out something we'd never seen before. He all of a sudden started doing the Gangnam style, uh, um, you know, whatever. Um, yeah, yeah. And the yeah. audience fell apart. It was so funny. And then he's flossing at one point later on and, you know, just doing stuff. And it really, so it, it's become this joke, but it was something that Christensen always wanted. So we're always trying mm -hmm. to work with that um, with integrity, but it's a lot of fun. So it, it, it's not slow. I've never seen a, a, a party scene that moves as quickly and as brightly as this one. And as engaging because party scene can drag a little bit. And 
the, 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 for all of these reasons, I think Christensen's Nutcracker is just such uh, an exciting, fun-filled, great introduction to uh, people who've never seen ballet, but also really fulfilling and substantial for people who know and love ballet. Mm, I love that. Oh my gosh. To be allowed to ad lib like that. That sounds so fun. It just really yeah. gives you life when you're on your 30th one, you know? <laughs> yeah, no, exactly. And I always wondered, huh. like, what did they do back in 44? What did they do in the fifties? What was he doing in that? You know, so. Right. <laughs> That's so fun. I wonder to, um, just for our listeners who aren't dancers, what is, what kind of work do you guys do to preserve the choreography? So, you know, you have dancers that are doing it year after year. I'm sure you have repetitors that have been working with pr- this production for so long. But just give us a little insight into that part of keeping the integrity of the choreography for all this time. Yeah, well, I mean, we we always go back through the archives. We stay connected very much with the Christensen family um, until very recently. Uh, we worked with Christensen's first uh, rehearsal director, Benet Arnold, and uh, she would oversee a lot of aspects of the production. Um, when I said maybe it's time to make a modification, we have a lot of people. Our archivist has actually been with the, uh, the company since day one. He was a child, Bruce Caldwell, Uh, and um, he would often say, well, you know, in 1964, he did this and he actually, you know, and so we're like, oh, let's try that this year. So we do modify things based, but it's always based on what Christensen or the Christensen brothers have done. Um, uh, Yes, we have dancers who know it well and but I also try and rotate casting as much as possible. Uh, We put on eight different Cast of principles, um, and um, that wow. ends up being however many casts of core based on the changes there, you know. And it's right. so it's a really great opportunity for a lot of uh, the uh, younger and less experienced dancers in the company to uh, get uh, uh, principal roles. And so a lot of core ballet members uh, are, are are put in principal roles. So the Nutcracker, um, it's I think also fresh because we d- we don't have a lot of rehearsal time for it. When our fall program ends, we have one week of rehearsal time. Oh, wow. <laughs> and so it goes, and then uh-huh. and then we go on. And we usually we introduce casts little by little give, while we're already performing, we're rehearsing other principal casts and, and that sort of thing. But it's it's a very quick, so it keeps it alive and fresh. Um, our rehearsal directors are, are really good. And I try and work with every single cast at every single level um, as much as I can. Right. Mm. Yeah. How often do tours of the Nutcracker happen? I know you've been to the Kennedy Center in the past with this production, um, but is this something common for, for Nutcracker in particular? You know, it's, yeah, I think the Nutcrackers are most often requested touring work. Um, mm. We've uh, toured to the Kennedy Center. This will be our fourth trip back to the Kennedy Center with the Nutcracker uh, since I've been here. So, um, mm. and then... Um, we've gone to Anchorage, Alaska, uh, we've gone to a couple of other places. So it's often mm. requested, I think, um, for a mid-sized company, I think we actually are relatively lean and mean when it comes to costs. So I think that that's what mm-hmm. makes us attractive. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, but, uh, yeah, so the Nutcracker tour is a great deal. We actually tour a lot for a company our size. This year alone, we're, um, uh, we went to an Arpino festival in Chicago where we performed there. Um, we're uh, going to Kennedy center with Nutcracker. We're going back to the Kennedy center in June with uh, our choreographic workshop uh, pieces, um, which is a- called Asian voices. And it's um, celebrating Asian choreographers, composers, and designers. Um, and um, yeah, a couple of other places too. So 
for a company our size, we're actually um, we we actually do get to tour a lot, and I think that that's a really great thing because that's what helps keep our name and our brand out there. Right. 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 I feel like that's something that's been really integral to your um, tenure as artistic director that you've really helped brand the company. I think what you said about um, being able to recognize a ballet West dancer, I think is very true. Um, I don't know if I can, exp- I mean, other than just being like tall and leggy <laughs> and elegant and beautiful, but there are other aspects to it. It's because I think when you talk about um, the demands of the rep, like, I mean, you said, you mentioned Forsyth and Najinska and of course the classics and, you know, I, you guys do balancing all the time and you do uh, kind of, there are very specific demands in the rep. Um, I'm kind of, I guess I'm wondering how how do you pick dancers then? How do you find someone that's going to fit the aesthetic of the company but also meet the demands of of the the width of the repertoire? Right. Well, um thank you and that's and that there's also just like planning a repertoire there's that intangible thing that is hard to always put your finger on. Um and yes, I appreciate that uh, you're calling them tall and beautiful and elegant, and I <laughs> like to think so too. But we have dancers of lots of different sizes and shapes, and that's part of my joy as well. You know, yes, we run on the tall side. Our shortest women are five foot four, and our shortest men are five foot eight or nine, and our tallest women are six feet, and our uh, three of them, and our tallest men are six foot six. So yes, we do run on the taller side, but we have within that, there's a big spectrum of of people and body types, uh, which is very important to celebrate in my opinion. Ultimately, it's about a movement quality. It's about approach. I won't deny that I like line and that that our dancers are very linear in that respect. Um, But I also, the biggest thing that I've worked hard to instill in all of them and continue to build is um, stylistic integrity, deep, deep appreciation and work to work within the style of whichever choreographer or piece of work we're doing requires. So, you know, I jokingly said one season in February, we did Ashton Cinderella and that had a very specific Royal Ballet style, you know, and in April we did Balanchine's Jewels and that had also an extremely different stylistic approach. And we, I expected our artists to approach each one of them that way. And Mm -hmm. as time has gone on, more and more of them really get it. So when I'm picking dancers and the other thing I love is we're actually training more and more dancers. We, uh, about, um, 90% of the company comes out of Ballet West too. Wow. So I usually like to pick them at a, a younger age. And now we're seeing 50% of that coming up out of the school that we mm. have dancers wow. come up all we I just hired three dancers who 16 years ago when I started were what we called the little buttercups because they were little yellow leotards and they were just skipping around the studio. They are now young adults and they are um uh Wonderful. they were just hired for the main company and doing very, very well. So my goal was always to try and build from the ground up and to build that stylistic integrity within them. So I spend an awful lot of time with our faculty, with our staff Staff to really, you know, get them to to understand the kind of detail work that's important to me. And then, as I said, there's that intangible thing. I like magical artists that move me, you know, sure, of course, everybody loves a lot of pirouettes and high legs and big jumps and, and things. I'll never say no to that. And of course, <laughs> I want dancers who can do that. But that's not the ultimate goal. 
It really isn't. Some of my greatest dancers um, were people who, you know, in class you might have seen them and they had fine, adequate technique. But on stage, they became magical creatures that could surpass uh, all expectations in terms of their approach to art. They went beyond themselves. And that's actually my goal for everything, you know, is we have to go to a different realm um, in the ballet, either in the studio or on the stage. You know, people aren't coming just to see pedestrian people. They're coming to see something more than what they see in real life, whether that's artists acting like pedestrian people or not, but it's about um, a higher, a higher place Mm. that, um, that our job is to take them to. And that's what I look for is that those people that have that commitment, not just people who have, you know, a perfect fifth and beautiful legs and feet or, you know, um, a million pirouettes, you know, I won't say no to that, as I said, but that's not my (laughs) goal. And that's not what I look for the most. It's really that depth of integrity. Right. So I wonder you've, listed quite a few things and accomplishments that you're very proud of already with the company. So in the next 16 years, what are some of your other goals that you have for the company moving forward? I really, really, and we've actually started uh, um, discussing embarking on a capital campaign to really help build this further. But I really, really want to be able to produce, have the freedom financially to produce more large scale works. We produce lots and lots of small works by uh, uh, emerging choreographers. I want to be able to produce more large scale works and take a chance, take a chance, because you know what? That's how we got Nutcracker. That's how we got Sleeping Beauty. Mm-hmm. That's how we got Swan Lake is yeah. because they took a chance on a big, large-scale work. And for instance, Nutcracker was a flop when it first came out. Um, But I want that ability to do that. And that comes with building the finances and building an endowment for that type of work. I want more people from around the world to see Ballet West and to appreciate the artistry of our artists and what we can give. So again, it's about creating uh, the ability to help us get to more international venues because it's very expensive. And these days, um, the companies that do that kind of international touring, they subsidize their own touring in many ways. And Mm -hmm. we're just not there yet. But that is a goal that I I want. Um, I with Of course, I will always entertain outside uh, um, uh, auditioners and in fact always do and look very carefully and still always every year bring at least a couple uh, if I have space from outside but I want the majority of our pipeline to come exclusively from our school so that we're producing dancers and that those dancers anywhere they go in the world would be known uh, you could see Ballet West's uh, brand on them and see um, the kind of training that we've built and in them and so um, my goal is for the school to have a hundred percent placement every year from the top levels, graduating levels, whether it's Ballet West or wherever. And so we all work hard to do that, but we're not there yet either. Um, there are lots and lots of things internally that I want to see. I want to keep on building on um, our um, our diversity, um, whatever that means, on so many levels, because that means so many things in so many ways. But um, as our city, we are in the fastest growing city in America. Mm. And that's very exciting. And as our city grows and our demographics grow, I want to produce work and put people on the stage that represent the world around us and let people see a reflection of themselves more and more. So we keep on building on that. But 
I recognize it takes time. It took us 16 years to get to this place, even though there had been a wonderful 40-something year of history prior to that. But so you ask about the next 16 years. I, I try and think I take the long game. I'm not just going to jump on what is fashionable right now. Um, maybe <laughs> if it's the right <laughs> thing for West, but not right. automatically. I, I have to make sure that it grows. So these are just some of the more the goals that I would love. I, I still feel very inspired um, here. The sky's the limit here. Mm-hmm. And, um, and that, that I think is always what's so exciting. That's such a, a beautiful way to, to end this interview. We hope that everyone in the D.C. area will come check you guys out for Nutcracker and then later for your return later in the season. And if you're in the Salt Lake City area, of course, check out all the wonderful work you'll be doing throughout this 23-24 season. Adam, thank you so much for joining us today. It was such a pleasure. Oh, thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate it. Conversations on Dance is part of the ACAST Creator Network. For more information, visit conversationsondancepodpod.com. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.